from the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. This is Religion for Life. I'm John Shuck, minister at First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. Religion for Life explores the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. Several times on this program, I've talked about the Pew Research Study uh, done a couple of years ago that showed an increase in the rise of the nuns, uh, those claiming no religion. And and why is that? And, and some of that reason is because religion is just distasteful. Uh, all kinds of bad behaviors are done in the name of religion. And uh, but. My guest today says that the answer to bad religion is not no religion. It's good religion. My guest is Martin Thielen. He's the senior pastor of Cookville United Methodist Church in Cookville, Tennessee. He served as pastor in both Southern Baptist and in United Methodist churches. He's the author of six books, including the best-selling What's the Least I Can Believe and Still Be a Christian. His latest book is the one we're going to talk about today, The Answer to Bad Religion is Not No Religion, A Guide to Good Religion for Seekers, Skeptics, and Believers. Welcome, Martin, to Religion for Life. Thank you, John. It's good to be with you. You know, I'm intrigued by the title of your earlier book, uh, What's the Least I Can Believe and Still Be a Christian. Uh, the, the title made me think of the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland, who boasts to Alice that uh, she can believe six impossible things before breakfast. And I often sometimes think that's what Christianity requires of uh, requires of us, to believe impossible things. Now, I have not read that book. I, I have read your latest book that we're going to talk about today. But maybe before we get there, uh, can you give us a thrust of that other book? What's the least I can believe and still be a Christian? I'd be happy to do so. That that title is uh, <clears throat> is both a blessing and a curse. It's quite engaging. People have wondered about it, but it also has given uh, I think the wrong impression that the book is pushing a, a minimalist Christianity. It's really a story, and I, and it's a short one. So I'll just go ahead and tell you the story. It sure. was years ago. <clears throat> I met a young man for the first time. He said. Uh, Reverend Thielen, you need to know I'm an atheist, and I can't stand organized religion, and I don't like hypocritical, judgmental Christians, and he went on and on, and we became good friends in spite of all that. And for a guy who didn't uh, believe in God and was an atheist, he sure wanted to talk about God and faith and religion a lot. And so as the months developed, uh, he became more and more receptive to the possibility of faith, and at one point he said, I've had an epiphany. I realize I'd, I'm not quite rejecting Christianity. I'm rejecting the way it's been packaged. Now, you need to remember this is back in the 80s, the religious right, the Jerry Falwell, the moral majority. And so we're talking about that kind of packaging. He didn't like that, nor did I. But anyway, the bottom, the end of the story is uh, a year or so later, he says, okay, Martin, you've just about convinced me on this uh, religion-Christianity thing. So I want to know what's the least I can believe and still be a Christian. And that stuck with me forever, and I knew one day that I would probably write something, and that's where the, that's where the title comes from. And it's really in two halves. The first half is what I don't need to believe, uh, things like I don't need to believe that uh, Christians have to be judgmental. I don't need to believe that science is the enemy of faith. I don't need to believe that God hates gays. I don't need to believe, you know, those sort of things. And then the second half is, well, what are some of the things Christians do need to believe? And to me, the bottom line is Jesus, and, and, and we get into some questions that Christ answers about what really matters most and 
those sort of things. That's kind of a, a nutshell of the previous book. And your book uh, comes out of the course of the practice of being a minister. Uh, how long have you been a minister? Ah, well, that goes back a long way. I've actually been engaged in church work uh, in one way or another since I was in college as a as a 18 year old kid doing a youth uh, ministry gig at a college and other opportunities during college and then during seminary and then full-time since there. I was not brought up in the church at all. I landed in a, in a Baptist church at age 15. had a very profound impact on me. And you've been a minister in, in at least two denominations, uh, now the United Methodist Church, which seems, as I understand, a little bit better fit for you uh, from reading your book. And, and you talk about, uh, in your book, how you were... Well, uh, disappointed or even disgusted, perhaps, with some of the attitudes and behaviors of your, your previous uh, place, and, and that kind of got you started, and you called it the day the music died. Uh, can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, I could. I, the first thing I need to say, though, and it's important for me to communicate this with you, is that I do not have a disparaging uh, a view of my old denomination. I'm very grateful. These are people, I mean, I, I knew nothing of the church, uh, and they introduced me. To, to Jesus, and they loved me and became a family that my very dysfunctional family could not be, and they helped call me into ministry, and they educated me in some very top-flight theological education, at very little cost, by the way, and they gave me incredible opportunities to serve. I served large membership churches, I served denominational headquarters, uh, worked with clergy all around the country, primarily around worship and preaching issues. Uh, I got to publish with them all the time. My point is I'm grateful for my old denomination. But all through those years, there was a drumbeat of this uh, pretty hard-line religious right fundamentalism that really took over, at least on the national level, of, uh, of my old denomination. And finally, I just realized I could not, I could not do that. I'm not uh, extreme left liberal Christian, but, but, that's, but that form was not who I was. For example, the total rejection of women in ministry and biblical inerrancy, that everything is absolutely literal, whether it's science or historical or geographical. I just could not, with integrity, affirm those things. And then a real mean spirit began to grow uh, by some very, I think, power-hungry people on, again, national politics level, and I just knew I had to make a shift. And at that point, began looking around, talking to the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians and the Lutherans and the UCC and a lot of other people. But landed in United Methodism that has all kind of flaws and problems, and uh, but it's it's family. It's a church we call ourselves a uh, church of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. And we don't always get along on everything, but it's a much more uh, hospitable place for for me to land. Well, you know, we have something in common. I, I grew up in that same denomination. I wasn't a, a, a leader in the ministry. I went, uh, I, I married into Presbyterianism, but uh, I started off in that same one. And, and, you know, when I was growing up in it, and I have, gr I have great uh, gratitude for, for it as well, leading me to faith and teaching me all of these wonderful things, but it seemed to be that, it, that it, uh, there a change happened uh, there in, in the mid-80s or early 80s or something like that, and it, it, it turned to be quite a bit more narrow, which I think is really the focus of, of what your book is talking about. Yeah, the same story with me. It, they're just, the church that I came from has always been a fairly conservative evangelical church, but there was room for what we called moderates back then, which was mm -hmm. the camp I fell into. And uh, and then there became no room for moderates. And my colleagues, at this, I used to teach, I was an adjunct professor at one of the seminaries, 
And uh, anyway, good friends were getting fired right and left, including the president of, of the where I worked in denominational headquarters, and a whole new breed of people came in. I went to a seminary that has been since completely decimated, but when I was there, it was a high-quality, top-drawer theological school. So there was a shift. We, we, we didn't just uh, I didn't just evolve out of it. There was a there was a dramatic shift that said there's really not room for the moderates. And with a lot of pain and agony, uh, I made the hard decision to, to leave. It really, the, the moment that light came on, there was a couple of them, but one was when I was still still there for several more years, is going to a conference and, and hearing, you know, God does not hear the prayer of a Jew. And, you know, and all the pastors clapping and amening, and I'm thinking, you know, this is, this is not home for me. But I stayed because it was the only home I knew. But then the other real epiphany moment was having lunch with a, uh, an older minister, that I thought a lot of, and uh, I was just moaning and griping and complaining about the cost of, of leaving. I, I had a good position, and I made a lot of money, and I had publishing opportunities, and on and on and on. The cost of leaving, the cost of leaving. And he looked at me with great compassion and says, Martin, tell me about the cost of staying. <laughs> and at that point, you know, I said, you're right. I, this just won't work. I was still in my 30s, late 30s, and I had to make a shift, but with great gratitude for, for what the heritage gave me. And now you are a United Methodist pastor, and, and, uh, and you're now in Cookville, Tennessee. Yes, as of about nine months ago. So well, we, con- uh, Congratulations, I guess, is the word on the new appointment. I hope <laughs> things are going well for you. It's been a good start. And uh, it's a crazy system to go from a free agent to an uh, appointment system. Uh, but I have learned to, uh, to trust the system fairly well, and, and uh, both have strengths and weaknesses. But all in all, uh, I'm at home with this one. Well, tell me about this book, uh, The Answer to Bad Religion is Not No Religion, a guide to good religion for seekers, skeptics, and believers. Uh, how did this book come to be? That's quite a long title, isn't it? So uh, let me tell you another story, uh, because that, uh, both of these last two books, the previous four, my first four books were for clergy, and they were all around mostly preaching and worship, a real pragmatic approach to that. Mm-hmm. The last two have been for a broader market, for lay people, for, for seekers, for people who have real questions about Christianity. But the opening story in this new book, uh, which will springboard our conversation, I think, uh, my previous church, uh, a young couple, they were probably 30, early 30s, they had two fairly young children, came to visit. And I was in a church that... Uh, United Methodist Church, that we boldly, I mean, we were we were the kind of the alternative in a Bible Belt of fundamentalist churches. We were the open hearts, open minds, open doors church, and people flocked. I mean, we were thriving because the people were hungry for that, I think. Well, the young couple comes, and I learn early on, they have never been to church in their entire life. Uh, like so many of our younger generation today, they felt the church stood for closed-mindedness and judgmentalism and partisan politics. But Clearly, they were hungry for some kind of spiritual connection, so they came to visit, and they came and visited a second and a third time. I offered to go to their home and visit or whatever. They said, Pastor, that's fine. We're just checking it out, and so I let them be. But about six months later, I mean, they became totally immersed. They were there every week. Their children got involved. They got involved in small groups. They were at worship. Uh, But I still kept my distance, didn't want to push them. Finally, they they initiated a conversation, came to the office and says, Pastor, we want to be baptized. We've never been baptized before to affirm our faith and become members of this church and have our children baptized. And, of course, it doesn't get much better than that uh, for a pastor. And, sure. uh, but my question to them was, well, what attracted you to this church in the first place? 
because I knew that they had had bad feelings about about church in general, just from a few brief conversations. And they said, the sign. And I said, I had no clue what they were talking about. I said, what sign? And they said, the sign in front of your church, the big sign that says, open hearts, open minds, open doors. We thought all churches were judgmental and narrow-minded. But when we saw your sign, we decided to come and visit and give it a try. And when we finally realized that the church inside lived up to the sign outside, we knew we wanted to connect and become members of this congregation. And so that story is a story that really in my last uh, 20 years with Methodism has been told literally thousands of times now. Uh, I think people, especially young people in America, at least many of them, are just, they're just starving for something other than this mean-spirited, angry, negative, judgmental, anti-science kind of religion. And so I think the main line, even though we're in decline, have a great story to tell, and that's that's kind of behind really both of these books. The second one is more focused on some religious practices. The other one's more about religious beliefs, but there's some carryover of both. Well, I think that's quite a positive statement to uh, actually live out one's signboard. Uh, well, we try, not perfectly for sure. And Methodists are trying to figure out how to do that and stay together, especially over the gay issue and the like. But I find it a much more uh, embracing and opening place than certainly where I came from. Well, a common story that I I have as well within the mainline church is that people will come, uh, they say, I haven't been to church in 30 years. So it's sometimes, it's in addition to young people, it's sometimes people uh, in their 50s, 60s, 70s coming oh, back absolutely. to church. We, most of the people that have, uh, my last congregation, for example, I, I was at a church for 10 years, and, and we just saw dramatic growth, and they came from all ages. And some had never been, most had been and quit, uh, often in their teenage years or their children years, their young adult years, and they came back 10, 20, 30, 40 years later, and we kind of, you know, reaffirmed their faith and their baptism, and they found a place that they could, uh, that it was okay to disagree, that it was okay to have different theological perspectives, that it was okay to bring your questions and your doubts, that doubt was not the enemy of faith, but a part of authentic faith. Uh, I think people are searching for that. I don't pretend that my congregations do that perfectly, but but we try. Um, well, you talk about a little bit by bad religion. What do you mean? And what are some examples of bad religion that you've uh, uh, experienced? Well, wow, I've experienced uh, plenty of bad religion in my day. Uh, I'll throw out just a couple of examples. My book really is not focused on the bad nearly as much as the good in mm-hmm. terms of page commitment. That's a very small section of the book. Near the end of that, I list about a dozen others, you know, anti-intellectual religion, gender-oppressive religion, prosperity religion, violent religion, private religion that's only cared with the soul and not with culture, those sort of things. But in the, in the actual first section of the book, uh, I do lay out four or five examples, and I, I think it's been a while since I wrote this, but to me, the, we just did a study. We didn't do the study, but we tapped into a study that was done in our little neck of the woods here in Middle Tennessee of people who don't go to church. And we learned that the number one reason they listed why they don't go to church is because their perception of the church is incredibly judgmental. And so to me, a really, you know, one of the, one of the primary characteristics of bad negative religion is, is religion that engages in self-righteous judgment. doesn't mean we can't have standards and, and that we throw away the Ten Commandments or that we let, we let people, you know, get by with inappropriate behavior. But that kind of self-righteous, I'm better than you, looking down on others, I think that's extremely 
negative, bad religion. And we see that in the story of Jesus over and over again. Uh, another characteristic that's similar but maybe a little different is I find negative, bad religion is just overwhelmingly negative. Uh, it's always what they're against this. They're against, <clears throat> you know, science. They're against gays. They're against Muslims. Whatever it is they're against, there's a, a real negativity. And I'm reminded of those who, when Jesus healed, for example, on the Sabbath, instead of being full of awe and joy and celebration that a child of God is, is whole again, they're only negative and angry and hostile because a, a rule had been broken. So that negativity. I think another sign of a bad religion is an arrogant religion, uh, an absolutism that I have all the answers and I'm right and everyone else is wrong. The older I get, the more comfortable I am with some ambiguity. We do not know it all. We cannot comprehend it all. Even the Apostle Paul said we see through the glass dimly and we know only in part. Uh, another example, and I'll wrap up, uh, uh, religion that gets involved in partisan politics to me is bad religion on either side. I, and I think the church has to engage in, in the social issues of the day and discuss and debate those. But there's a difference between that and, and being partisan with you know, for a particular party or candidate, that gets to be a serious problem. Religion that is just excessively nationalistic, even though I'm a patriot, my dad was a lifelong Air Force pilot, I get a little scared of the whole God and country as though that's one thing. Uh, and then in the mainline church, I see a lot of bad religion that's just real nominal, you know, that we expect more out of people who join the Rotary Club than we do join a mainline church, and so I think that's bad religion that doesn't take faith seriously enough for it to impact and to inform our life. Uh, so those are some examples. There's certainly others. And I'm, when, I, when I'm talking in this book about bad religion, I'm primarily talking about you know Protestant religion in the United States. I don't really get into uh, other religious traditions much, but stick with my own. There's plenty of bad there. You know, just as an anecdote, I remember having coffee with a, a college student, and he uh, uh, worked at the local, one of the local fast, or not fast, but chain restaurants, and, and he says that, uh, and, and he just came out and told me, he says, you know, the worst shift is Sunday afternoon, because that's when the church people come, and they're, uh, uh, they're lousy tippers and rude. And, and, so, uh, I've, and I've heard that from so many, so I always try to, like, double what the tip should be, to give a little, <laughs> little, uh, a little alternative to that, so. Right. Well, you know, uh, there's a study that came out. Of course, we're all we're all familiar familiar with that now. Probably the Pew Research Forum, I think, talked about the increase of the nuns, uh, people who are um, not identifying as religion, and that's up by I, I think it's 20 percent now from uh, uh, 2007, which it had gone up about five percent points or something like that. And they're not necessarily atheist or agnostic. They are just not interested in institutional religion. No, and I've met a lot of these people, and I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, that's probably was uh, one of the, uh, other than my own story and experience of both experiencing the toxic negativity of bad religion, contrasted with very healthy, life-giving, healthy religion. I mean, that's behind my writings. But that, what you just mentioned, was a huge uh, impact on why I wrote this most uh, recent book. I, I've been alarmed by, uh, if I remember the numbers, for decade upon decade, I mean, we're talking 30 or 40 years, about 6% of the American population consider themselves none, no religious affiliation at all. I guess what they do these annual studies, and you can mark I'm Jewish, I'm Catholic, I'm Protestant, I'm Muslim, I'm you know, Buddhist, whatever. Only 6% I said I'm nothing, and now that number has gone up way into the 20 percentile in a very, very short period of time. Mm -hmm. And among young adults, it's skyrocketed. It's over a third or more. And in fact, there was another study done just, I think, three weeks ago that the millennial generation, they didn't use the language of none, but uh, 
only one-third of that generation said that religion was very important to them. So there's been a huge shift. And I read an interesting book by a couple of sociologists called American Grace. There's a subtitle. I don't remember what it is. Uh, and their argument, and I think it's well-documented, is that the number one factor in that shift, it's not, a, it's not the only factor, uh, but the number one factor in the shift of this radically increasing number of nuns is that these people have been turned off by this negative, bad religion. In America, for the last 20 years, the voice of Christianity, sadly to me, has primarily been this religious right, hardline, anti-gay, you know, don't believe in science, reject global warming, uh, you know, against immigration reform, against, you know, all, they're, they're just reacting against this, this, this very harsh, judgmental, arrogant religion. And that, that breaks my heart. Because I think, just like my first story when I talked, when we began this conversation, the way that Christianity has been wrapped uh, is turning a lot of people off. And so I just think it's crucial crucial that the mainline church offer a better story, a better alternative. And we've not done a very good job of that, quite frankly. Most of us have not. Well, you know, uh, uh, to, to play the devil's advocate on this, the late Christopher Hitchens has said that religion itself is the problem. Religion poisons everything, he said. So uh, I'll put it to you bluntly. Why shouldn't people give up on religion altogether? Well, I understand why people do. And so I'm not as hard. I don't have a hard line toward the agnostics and the atheists among uh-huh. us and, 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 and actually can understand a lot of what they say. Uh but I think there's a better option. I, who was it? Was it Anne Rice? Is she the novelist who, it was a few years ago, came mm-hmm. out and says, I quit Christianity. I'm tired of it being, yeah. you know, and, and she was a Catholic, I think, and she was really fed up with the bureaucracy and the theology. And I understood what she was saying. I related to that, but my, I wanted to scream, well, there's, but there's, a, there's another option. There's a better right. option. But my, to quickly respond, I mean, that's a huge, you know, topic. While I can understand that, I don't think the new atheists are going to are going to really attract a lot of people. Even these all these nuns, most of them are not atheists. They're they're just turned off by institutional religion. For one thing, I don't think it's practical. Uh, I just read some research, totally scientific, not there was not religious at all, but uh, basically just showing that in every culture, in every place in the world, people just tend to be religious. Like it's almost we're hardwired to be that way. So first, I don't think it's practical. I don't think people are going to give up religion. Even even the author that you mentioned said that's not likely to happen anytime soon, as long as people have you know fears of the dark. And I don't remember his exact language, but it's not a practical. But to me, the the, the the bigger story is this is not helpful. In fact, it's counterproductive. In spite of all the negative religion, and I am not denying that it exists, I look around and my congregation, for example, and others, and see so much good coming out of religion. I mean, their benefits are huge. It gives billions of people, literally, a sense of meaning in their lives. It puts people in relationships and communities all over the world. It gives people, you know, it inspires ethics and, 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 and living, and, and it inspires beauty and music and art, and it educates, and it's, you know, religion is behind the early medicine. and the, Virtually every charity in the world started and still is uh, faith-based. Religion, in its better moments, fought oppression, fought the civil rights movement. Uh, religion gives people transcendence in their lives. I, I think it would be a barren, bankrupt world without it. No, I'm biased. I'm a minister, and I have a vested interest in it. But I, but I think a world without religion, I remember the old uh, C.S. Lewis story of uh, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia. 
they remember the story, and, and they talked about living in this, uh, when everything was terrible, it was always winter, but never Christmas. And to me, that's kind of what a world without religion would be. It would be bleak and dark, and, and all those things that I just mentioned and more would not exist. I mean, just my congregation here, every week, there's just incredible things happen. Uh, 300 families come and get groceries from our congregation every week. Homeless people have a place to sleep here in the wintertime. Uh, we have ministries for uh, uh, young men and women who are over 18, have mental handicap disorders, and they have no place to go anymore. The school system is over. Well, we provide a community for them, a place where they can come and connect. We have a, a place that works with Alzheimer patients. We, you know, large numbers of people connect in worship and in community and in small groups and, and uh, just on and on I could go. It would be... It would be a sad world, I think, to lose religion altogether. And, of course, what, what you're talking about is that, that need to constantly be in the sense of, of reforming, of, of who are we really, what is the central message, and how not to get sidetracked by uh, lesser messages. Absolutely. You know, if we could have just kind of stuck with uh, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, the great commandment of Jesus, we'd be in much better shape. We've gotten way too institutionalized and too rigid on our doctrines. I don't deny any of that. Uh, but the overall story of the life, death, resurrection of Christ and, and the church and the great commandment and those sort of things, they're just hold rich meaning for me and a whole lot of other people. You know, you mentioned a couple of times if you, uh, about uh, attitudes toward gay and lesbian folks, and I'm wondering, uh, what do you think, uh, thinking about your denomination, I'm Presbyterian, you're Methodist, uh, what, what, do you, what do you see as signs of hope, and what do you think is the hope for this? You know, I, don't, I cannot really answer that. It is messy in my denomination. We are mm. not of one mind on that. And I don't know how it's going to be resolved. I read an article on the front page of Christian Century a couple of weeks ago. It says there's a time for a split in the United Methodist Church. The trouble is there's no neat way to split it. Even in local congregations, there's people who are on one side of that argument. There's people clearly on So even in just in one little church microcosm, you're going to have a very messy, bloody split. And when you try to do that on a national basis, it's even worse. And uh, so we're all over the map. And right now our official stance is kind of middle of the road. We affirm all people, and gays are welcome in the life of the church, and we fight for their civil rights. But on the other hand, our denomination officially is not ready to do gay marriages and have openly gay clergy. And we, we're trying to figure that out. And quite frankly, I don't know where we're going. I do know that we, unlike some other churches, we are a global church. And so that we are informed by that. And when we have our general conference every four years, which is the only institution that speaks for the entire denomination, uh, more and more of that comes from the continent of Africa. They have more conservative uh, opinions about the gay issue. So I don't see our official language changing anytime soon, but we still may have schism over it, or the or U.S. may pull out of the global church and create their own. But even then, it would be a big battle. I, I wish I could answer that. I I'm in a church, for example, that is kind of, for good or for bad, it's a don't ask, don't tell. We have gay people here that are in clear leadership, and everybody knows it, but we just don't talk about it very much. That's kind of where most Methodists are. But we're in a battle, and I don't know where it's going to end. I wish I I could give you more uh, definitive uh, feeling about where where we're going. I really don't know. 
Well, I, I certainly appreciate uh, your candor with that, and I appreciate this book because I think that's one, that's uh, a way to go, is to talk about what good religion is and to take on the problem of, of bad religion, uh, which your book has done and your ministry has done. Uh, and we're just unfortunately out of time, but I really enjoyed this conversation. Martin Thielen, my guest, uh, author of The Answer to Bad Religion is Not No Religion, A Guide to Good Religion for Seekers, Skeptics, and Believers. Martin, thank you for being with me today and for your work. Appreciate the invitation. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Schack, minister at First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find more information about Religion for Life at our website, religionforlife.com. Also go there and find links to podcasts. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and hear us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by W. WETS-FM in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM in Virginia. Be well.